Good morning. Uh, two weeks time is church retreat, and so, you know, some of us may want to go up earlier to go eat durian or what. But remember, our church retreat, the first message is actually the Sunday message, the Sunday morning. Okay, so if you're going to miss it, please uh, stream, uh, st- watch our stream online on Sunday morning, or you can join us for our Saturday evening worship, okay? So the first message actually starts here at church. By the time we get to Malacca, that's the second message. It's on the book of Daniel, and so I want to encourage all of us who are going to, for the next two, two weeks, we can do our devotions on Daniel. The last few weeks, I've been going through Daniel in my quiet time, and I find that, um, you know, there are a lot of good reminders, uh, especially a good way to prepare our hearts uh, for our church retreat. And so, we'll continue in our series, Psalms of Lament. Today, we'll be looking at, the last two weeks, we look at praying in tears, praying in despair, and today, we're looking at praying in anger. Let us pray. Lord, we commit this time to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, to as you open your word that you convict our hearts. Truly, we'll see Christ lifted up. And so our pain, Lord, can be turned to praise and you'll be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday, February the 7th, 1992. Joy Mendoza shares a story. She said that day was like any other ordinary day. I went to school and I wanted to go over to my best friend's home. But my parents were going to another city that night to lead a Bible study. And so they preferred me to stay at home. So I invited Irene and Lena to come over after school. But that night, 10 heavily armed men broke into our homes. They tied up my younger sister, my younger brother, our maid, the driver, and the missionary who rented the unit in our basement. That night, in my own bed, in the bathroom, and in in my brother's room, I was raped by a total of seven men. They spoke vile things to me and performed unspeakable, perverted acts. I didn't know at the time that Lena and Irene had arrived at our home at a agreed time, walking into this nightmare. They were also sexually assaulted. After, the rapists wanted to kill us, but for some reason they didn't do that and they fled. Soon the police came and rescued us. My parents came home and when they saw the police cars outside of our house, their worst fears were realized. I saw them walking into the living room and I just ran up to them and threw myself at them. Usually, I have no problems talking to my parents. But that day, I could only hug them. I didn't know what to say. Finally, I mustered up enough courage and I blurted out, Dad, Mom, I was raped. Tears instantly welled up and I broke down. For the first time that day, I truly cried over what had happened. And I know that my parents' hearts were broken. They had protected me growing up, safeguarded my purity. I didn't have any premarital sexual experience. I didn't, haven't even kissed a guy. But that word, rape, caused me to feel dirty, ashamed, used. I didn't know how to face myself, face others. There was a lost innocence that I can never recover. That was the dividing line between my childhood and the rest of my life. 
After that, memories of the attack will assault me over and over again. Sometimes I will feel this despair that will come uninvited. You know, what happened to Joy Mendoza? Perhaps most of us, we cannot understand. But certainly we can understand pain. A disappointment from people we love, a betrayal from a spouse, maybe what our parents did or what our children said to us. The question is, when we face such tragedies of pain, what do we do with it? Perhaps some of us, you know, we quickly bottle it up, push it to the back of our minds and we, under the pretense of spirituality, we hand it over to God. Maybe sometimes too quickly. What happens is we push it to the back of our mind where it simmers and that's bad news because we cannot smell the burned. And then one day it just comes out. It blurts out in anger and it will destroy a relationship, destroy our career, destroy our reputation. So can we pray in anger? Can God handle our anger? That's what I would like us to think about today. And we look at Psalm 10. We look at Psalm 57 and 42 the last two weeks, right? The psalmist prays over his despair, his grief. He even talks to his own soul. He says, oh my soul, why are you in despair? You know, today we'll see that he will actually pray for the people that were hurting him. Well, what does he pray for? So from Psalm 10, we'll look at his um, protest or lament. Secondly, his petition, his prayer. And finally, his praise. Okay? Protest, petition, and praise. His protest is, why, O Lord? Why? Why is this happening? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? See, right off the bat, the psalmist asks this question, why? Is it because he didn't have faith? No. It's because he has faith in a good and loving God and that is why he asks us this question. He cannot understand why. And so, lament is us struggling to lift out our faith in a broken world. It's a voice of pain for sins, ours, others, the world. It's a voice of struggles. And we realize that, you know, fervent prayer includes faith and doubts. Belief and questions. And why does he ask this question? What was he facing? He goes on to tell us in the next 10 verses. It says, In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Since they don't even care about God, they are so prideful. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there's no God. He mocks at God, and yet his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, but out of sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. Solomon says, God, you judge, you know, but to this guy, it's, your judgment is too high. It doesn't affect him. He's not afraid. His ways still prospers. He says to himself, the wicked says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout generations, I will not be in adversities. He has generational wealth, enough to sustain generations. He's not afraid. And so his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Underneath his tongue is mischief and wickedness. 
He sits in the looking place of the villagers. In the hiding place, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He looks in the hiding place as a lion in his lair. He looks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He seeks and harms the innocent. He's constantly, stealthily hiding like a lion, prepared to attack. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Why did the psalmist ask God those questions? It's because he sees injustice and wickedness and he asks God, why is this happening? You know, we've never felt such feelings of anger, of injustice. Either we have not lived long enough or we don't really care about the justice of God. See, it brings us to this question we call theodicy or the problem of evil. Why does a good God allow this? So either God is good or He's not God. We call this a problem of evil. Last week, remember I said, we may arrive at this conclusion that, you know, we feel that such injustice has happened. I can't believe in God. Now, when we make that statement, firstly, you must understand that statement presupposes God. Because if you don't believe in God, there's no transcendental, transcendent, there's no, you know, morality that transcends uh, our own relative values. This is such a long word to explain that short word that I cannot pronounce. Okay, if you don't believe in God, really the unfair things that happen to you is not truly unfair. It's only relative, right? Because to someone else, it may not be unfair. Hence, we have no basis to say that this is unfair, therefore I don't believe in God. Secondly, if you don't believe in God, doesn't mean you don't face that problem, right? You still have to face injustice. Evil will still happen. So either we rely on our own resources to face it or we rely on God. So that's the conclusion if we see injustice. But today when we talk about theodicy, it's not that we want to, we decide that we can't believe in God, but there is a real problem we feel. Because we believe God is good, God is loving, then why? Why is this happening? So in the 17th century, I think the first person that really tries to put, it, to put this together, Pierre Bayle, he says, we abandon reason in favour of faith. Meaning, don't, don't try to reason, just believe. Believe God is good and we just accept what happened. Okay? His compatriot, oh, today the German teacher is not wrong, so I'll try to pronounce it, Leibniz. <laughs> you know, Saturday service, we have a German teacher, so every time I pronounce wrongly, I'm corrected. Okay, I don't know how to pronounce that, but he says, God does not will moral evil, but he permits it because man is free so that greater good might result. So he tries to reason it. He says, actually, God doesn't want this to happen, but he values freedom. We have this freedom, and so our freedom, people are evil, but God can bring good out of it. And so we have different uh, intellectual reasons or theological reasons to answer this question. But we must understand that theodicy basically means we ask this question not because we need intellectual reasons. It is often the cry of a broken heart. Philip Yancey in his book, Rumours of a Forgotten World, he shares about a director of world vision. He was in Sudan standing on a bridge looking at a river that was red with blood. He said he saw body parts streaming down the river, torsos, arms, legs, it was after a genocide and he said that scene was so cruel 
that for the first time in my life, I doubted the existence of God. Now, this is what I mean. It's not about intellectual reasons. It's a cry of a, a broken heart when we have some inexplicable suffering, unanswerable questions. And that is why we ask this question, God, why? And we should. Sometimes what we need is not answers, you know. What we need is to know that God has not abandoned us, that God is still with us. And that is why if you think of the book of Job, you know, Job suffered a lot here, a lot of questions, right? But when God appeared, did God answer his question? No. God just showed Job his creation, everything he created, and he asked Job, do you know who I am? And so at the end of the book, the conclusion, Job said this, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I know, I used to know about you. Job was a righteous man. He offered sacrifice. He prayed to God every day, but he says, now I truly know you. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. So friends, the psalmist teaches us to protest, to ask God why. God can handle our questions. We don't have to pretend as if we don't ask, don't have doubts. We don't have to hide it in our hearts as if we don't feel those feelings. He already knows and so we bring it before Him. Harry Nowen shares this. He says, instead of escaping ordinary life, we should invite the Holy Spirit into our experience, thoughts, memories, worries and plans. Instead of seeking a life free of pain and suffering, we should trust that Jesus is present in our pain and suffering. We need to acknowledge our suffering honestly, our loneliness, regrets, sadness, hopelessness, and anger. And then open our hearts to the one who loves us in every detail of our lives. In this way, our sorrow can turn into a joy, our hostility into hospitality, our loneliness to solitude pregnant with possibilities. It's not about denying how we feel or pretending that those things did not happen, but we say you bring it before the Lord to wrestle with Him to know that God is with us through this. If we experience the grief, if we experience grief at the loss of a loved one, we should not simply tough it out or forcibly turn our attention to more pleasant things. Rather, we should let Jesus bear the loss with us. And that is the value of lament, of solitude, of wrestling with God. Where the psalmist asks, Why, O Lord? And then he goes on to pray for those people, those wicked people. Now, what does he pray about? He says, make them pay. Verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has to say to himself, you will not require it. He says, the wicked doesn't believe in God. He doesn't care. But God, you have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. You've seen the wicked, you know. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Your, your God doesn't like injustice. Therefore, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find a miss, until you know you've accounted for every one of his wicked acts. Wow, can we really pray like that? God, I don't like him, no, break his arm. You know, there's a set of psalms in the Psalter called imprecatory psalms. It means curses. 
like Psalm 10. Psalm 55, he said, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down life in Sheol. What is he saying? He's saying, let them send them to hell. That's basically what he's saying, you know. Go to hell. He said, oh, really? Psalm 139, he said, I hate them with the utmost hatred. I hate them to death. Psalm 137, I often say it's my favorite imprecatory psalm. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. He's saying, take their babies and crush the babies on the rocks. Now, you know, Psalmist in 137 was in Babylon, right? And you know, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, destroyed them, and carried out a genocide. And this was his response in prayer. Now, when we look at these Psalms, we say a few, we have a few responses. Some of us are like, oh, shocked, you know? Say, oh, all my life I didn't know can pray like that, you know? Are you sure or not? You know, Pastor, are you teaching me something wrong? Some of us are quite excited. You think, what? You mean I can pray like that? That has been exactly been what is missing from my prayer life, you know, all these decades. No wonder every time I pray halfway, I fall asleep. Now imagine now asking God to crush the babies on the rocks. You think you can sleep? Now, the truth is, the imprecatory psalms are there. What do we do with them? First, thankfully, it's the minority, okay? Only a few psalms are like that. So we don't curse people all the time. C.S. Lewis says these psalms are actually sinful, so we shouldn't pray. But I think we have another view of it. They are there in Scripture, in the Psalms. Because firstly, when we go through injustice, surely there are some feelings. Surely there must be anger if we care enough for who God is. So what do we do with the anger? We pretend it doesn't exist. We bottle it up, we shut it, push it down somewhere. You know, unexpressed anger, one day it will just come out in some way. It doesn't come out straight, it comes out crooked. Like today in Europe, you know, they're still discovering bombs from World War II. And every year, you know, they discover them by the beach or construction site. And people are still being killed by these bombs because boom, they explode. Even 50, 60 years after the end of the war. Lingering anger is like lingering bombs. One day, they will explode. They explode at the wrong time. It causes or triggers a wrong reaction. You swing your arm and hit somebody. It destroys a marriage, it destroys your reputation, it destroys your life. So what do we do with these negative experiences? When the psalmist prays, remember, he's praying to God. He brings this to God. Because he believes God is just, God is righteous, he, he doesn't go and take the people's baby and crush them against the rock, okay? He's expressing his anger and sense of injustice to God because he believes in God. And when we pray like this, you know, we have to humble ourselves because you realize, you know, I'm just as sinful as those evildoers. It's so hard to love my enemies. I'm just like them, you know. And as a result, we leave this anger, this unforgiveness to God. We look at a, a serious look at our own lives because if you're praying, God, you know, that guy every time take my credit for my work, please cause him to fall down and break his bone. Now, if you pray like that, do you think you'll be taking credit for other people's work? Probably not, lah, because you also don't want to fall and break your own bone, right? So it causes us, imprecatory prayers, causes us to take a good look at our own lives. In my opinion, these Psalms teach us to process our negative experience, our feelings, our anger. And when we do that, something changes in our hearts. For all the above reasons, because 
we realize that we are just as sinful. We realize we are just as undeserving of forgiveness. Something changes. So you look at all these imprecatory psalms, right? Psalm 109, he, he asked, may the children be fatherless, the wife be a widow. You know, but at the end, it, it turns, at the end of the psalm, he says, with my mouth, I'll give thanks abundantly to God. I'll praise God. Psalms 28, same. He says, God, you know, they don't regard God, the works of God, but as he prays, he says, blessed be God. He has heard my prayers. We leave our vengeance to God. We're not taking revenge for ourselves. We trust God is a better justice maker. Something changes when we pray. When we leave our anger to God rather than taking it out on others, rather than taking revenge into our own hands. So we ask God, why? Why is this happening? Psalmist says, make them pay. You know, when we talk about anger, there is righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Right? Righteous anger is like Jesus. He went to the temple and those people are buying and selling and Jesus says, this is the house of God, the house of prayer. And so he overturned all the tables, right? That's righteous anger. Then there's unrighteous anger where we're angry about things we shouldn't be angry about. Now when we talk about righteous anger and all the others anger, we have to be careful. Lah. Firstly, we're not Jesus, okay? Right? When we get angry, very quickly it becomes self-righteousness. When we are supposed to be angry, we are not angry. When we are not supposed to be angry, we get angry. What are we supposed to be angry over? Injustice. Unfair things that happen to other people. But when we see these things, you know what? Most of the time we say, oh yeah, never mind. Lah. It's, it's people, not me. But when things happen to us, even small things, you know, car cut in front of us, suddenly we have to jam brake. Or as I say, our work, our credit taken by other people, wow, immediately we get angry. But we look in Scripture, that is not what we should get angry about. And so Tremel Longman, a Hebrew scholar, he says, pondering the character of God does not pacify anger. It deepens it. Our struggle is never that we are too angry, but that we are never angry enough. Do you understand what he's saying? We don't feel this way, because sometimes, frankly, maybe we don't really care about who God is, but we care about our own comfort, our own needs, our own reputation. Since if you truly think about it, we should get more angry, you know. Our anger is always pitifully small when it is focused against a person or an object. It is meant to turn against all evil and sin, beginning with my own failure to love. When we focus our anger just on a person or object of our own needs, that is where, you know, that's not the right anger. That's not what we are supposed to be angry about. But most of the time, we are angry over those things. Instead, it is against sin, against injustice. And he correctly points out, it often begins with us that we don't feel injustice for other people. And so when we talk about anger, you know, there's always a positive and negative side. We look at, and all of us have this dark side where we do not know how to process all these emotions in us. We look at this Moses. Remember Moses? He was a prince of Egypt, but actually he was a Hebrew person. And so one day, Scripture tells us, it came about in those days when Moses grown up, he went out to his brethren, the Hebrews, looked at their hard labor, they were slaves. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, 
where he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, why, why did Moses have to kill this Egyptian? Isn't Moses the prince of Egypt? He could have simply said, hey, stop, ah. if not, I take away your whip. He can say anything, ah. they will stop, right? Because he's the prince, you know. He didn't have to kill the man. But his anger came out of nowhere and he just struck him down. The next day, he went out. Behold, two Hebrews were fighting and he said, why are you striking each other? Again, he got angry. He said, you know, yesterday, because I already helped you already. I killed that Egyptian. Now you want to fight each other? Why? And then you know their response, right? They say, who are you? Who do you think you are? And then Moses realized he had to flee and he left. He ran away to the desert. Now we think about Moses. The moment he was born, his life was threatened. Pharaoh wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys, right? His family abandoned him, threw him down the river Nile. And thankfully, he was picked up by the, the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, and not by the crocodile of Nile, right? And then, immediately, the, the, the parents, they, they reunited with him. So from, from, from a small boy, he knew he was not an Egyptian. How terrifying is that? I think it would be better off if he didn't know. He just grew up like a prince. But from a young age, he lived in two worlds. One was the world of the Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's court, where he was powerful, where he had everything he wanted. And then the other was his hidden world as a Hebrew person. Anytime where if his identity gets exposed, he'll be killed. How does he cope? Well, he developed some coping mechanism and got him by until one day he became maladaptive. One day he came of age, this thing that used to help him no longer helps him and he just burst out. Anger was triggered like a lingering bomb. Boom, he killed that guy. That is what happens to negative emotions when we don't deal with it with God. When we say, I hand it over to God, we hide behind the pretense of spirituality, but we never really get healed. We never really let it go. How do we respond? You know, in 2018, I went on a silent retreat with Pastor Peter. Just two of us. Next time he invites you, please don't go, okay? I warned you first. Last time nobody warned me. So I went. Then he says, you want to pray about becoming senior pastor? I said, whoa, really? And we prayed the, the retreat. La. And then one day he asked me, one night he asked me, why, why don't you want to be? What are you afraid of? How do you think I responded? What do you think I'm afraid of? Afraid of God. Afraid that I cannot lead this church. I told him, I'm afraid, I fear, what I fear the most is myself. I didn't know how to explain, you know. I didn't know how to explain. What do I fear yourself? But I was reading this book during the silent retreat and it brought up this point about Moses. And there was this statement, Ruth Haley Barton, she says, Moses powered up himself by anger. Through his anger, his anger powers him up so that he can face the situation. And that statement just resonated. I don't know if you all resonate with you, okay? Because yesterday after I preached, everybody gave me that strange look. <laughs> okay, but anyway. You know, I felt since young, that's exactly how I felt. I get powered up by anger. It's just beneath the surface, you know, you can't tell. Of course, your EQ must be high enough, la. don't let people know, but by anger gives me the extra edge and focus and energy to achieve what I want. And as a result, you know, I mean, it was helpful for a time in my life, but as I grew up, especially after I became a Christian, it becomes a problem. I get angry with the people around me. You know, there was this Marvel, uh, one of the episodes, right, where I think Captain America asked Bruce Banner, Incredible Hawk, he says, how do you control the hawk? What's the secret? And Bruce Banner said, the secret is, I'm angry all the time. 
And also, it became maladaptive to the people I love. It's like, oh, why like that? I go to work, you know, bef- all the workplaces I've been to before QBC, I always te- felt I was more capable than the boss. But you know, that didn't come from a place of health. I didn't understand. I just felt that way. It got me by. But I realized it came from a place of darkness. And really, it was inferiority complex. The first time I understood it, I was shocked. Huh? What's inferiority complex? Never dealt with it in my life. That's how I thought. But God was dealing with me. And so I remembered, you know, um, that night I was reading uh, Ruth Haley Button's book, what I quoted in a pastor's voice. She said, most of what happens in solitude is happening underneath the surface and God is doing it. It means you're not really aware, you know. It's not intentional. Something is happening. Moses was called into the wilderness and the next time we see him exercising leadership. God's invitation for us in solitude is a call to freedom from our inner bondage to deeply patterned response that were once helpful to us but now only cripple us in what we are called to do. Maybe this, this sort of deeply patterned response is something we just respond is... is, is Automatic, you know, it helped us. It was helpful for a moment. But now, it's maladaptive. Now, it hurts us. Only those whom God freed at this level are prepared to lead others into the freedom they seek. Only those who have been brave enough to write their own monsters of anger and greed and jealousy and narcissism and fear and violence all the way down to the bottom will find a truer energy with which to lead. Have you faced your greed, anger, jealousy, narcissism, fear, and violence. And I have to say, you know, all these words describe me sometime or another. Only those who have faced their own dark side can be trusted to lead others toward the light. You know, friends, we always say we are sinners. Saved by grace. What does it mean by sinner? Do you really think you're a sinner? How do you sin? Anger, narcissism, jealousy, lust. That's our dark side. But that is not the end of the gospel story, right? The gospel story is Jesus faced our darkness so that we can face our dark side, so that we can turn our pain into praise. And this is what happened to the psalmist. After he protested, he says, God, why is this happening? God, I don't understand. I cannot accept. You are a good God. You are a just God. How can you allow this? I pray for those people. God, break their arms. Account. Take account of all their sins. And after that, he said, verse 16, The Lord is King forever and ever. Nations have perished from His land. O Lord, You have heard the desire of the humble. You have strengthened his heart. You have inclined your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He says this wicked man will no longer cause terror because God will reign. He leaves his hurt, his anger, his desire for vengeance to God who is sovereign, who is good. And for us, I think all the more we have the confidence because of what Jesus did on the cross. You know the psalmist of verse 10, or Psalm 10, he faced injustice. He cries out for vengeance. 
But you know, Jesus faced the ultimate injustice. He was sent to the cross by the Sanhedrin, which is the 77 elders of the Jewish people. They convened court in the middle of the night. How is that fair? They wanted to quickly say he's guilty and send him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, before daybreak. Why? See, firstly, not all 77 of the elders probably wanted to do this to Jesus. The high priest gathered his own gang, those who agreed with him, and then they sent Jesus on this trial, had false witness, and said he was guilty. Secondly, just a few days before, you remember the people of Jerusalem had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. Hosanna, you are our Messiah. And if they find out that the Sanhedrin was going to send him to the cross, how do you think they would have responded? And so the Sanhedrin wanted, the high priest wanted to quickly finish this, send him to, to Pontius Pilate because once it's handed over to Rome, you know, it's a different story because Rome has an army. It's not so easy to stop them. And so if you think, who faced the ultimate injustice? I would say it's Jesus. He was falsely accused, unfairly tried, and yet when he was reviled, he kept silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. And on the cross, he didn't say, oh God, break the arms of those who put me here. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Why can our pain be turned to praise? Because of the gospel because of what Christ has done. And week after week, I say the same thing. We need the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. Meaning it's not out of our own goodness or morality. We have our dark side and yet we can be saved because Christ died the death we deserved. And hence, we live by faith. We live by faith that we can forgive. We live by faith that we don't have to take vengeance in our own hands. We live by faith that even though we have a dark side, Jesus knows. And we need to face our dark side. Write it down to the bottom. Come to face to face with ourselves, our true self, honestly before God. And there we find that the gospel is sufficient. But without that, we always hide ourselves from others. Because we don't know, we don't believe that we are truly accepted. We don't know, we don't believe that we can truly be loved. And so we hide behind this dark side. Our pain can be turned into praise because of what Jesus has done. And so when we talk about lament, lament is to create space for negative experiences. It's the voice of pain over sin. My sin, your sin, the sin of the world. We don't just get angry because of bad things happening to us. That our rights are being violated. We get angry because... The justice of God is being violated. Lament challenges us to confront suffering and struggles. It's real. We live in a broken world. But lament also calls us to pour out our hearts to God, to know that we have a God who understands and we can commit ourselves and our lives to Him. Joy, Mendoza, she shares this. She says, when we cannot understand the why, we must look at the who. The thing happened when I was 15 years old and it blew a big black hole in my life. I knew that God was loving, but I didn't have any hope of love. 
I couldn't see how I can come out of this darkness. Scripture says God is love. Scripture tells me Jesus loved me enough to die for my sins and He will walk with me all the days of my life. And so, I choose to believe. I chose the word of Joseph in Genesis 50 when he said, you meant it for evil, but God, but God meant it for good. She said the three of them gathered and they prayed and they decided they are going to share their stories. Share their stories in their schools, in the various congregations of their church. And as they prayed and shared the details of what happened, she said healing began. Because for the longest time, I felt guilty. I felt this guilt of inviting my friends over to my home. If I didn't do it, they wouldn't have suffered such a fate. But it was in our sharing and prayer that we realized that God allowed this to happen, but allowed us to experience it together. We will witness to His goodness. We will witness to His love. We will witness to how He preserved our lives. You know, today, Mendoza, she's married with four kids. Her husband is a pastor. And so they serve together in the Philippines. Served out of brokenness. Served out of having experienced the grace of God in her life that she can forgive. And not let the anger and bitterness eat her up. Not let, let the darkness hold her in despair. And so friends, my word for us today if you don't understand why, we look at who. We can look at the cross and understand God's love for us when we face inexplicable suffering so that pain may turn into praise. Let us pray. Lord, once again, we give thanks to you for your word. Each time we open your word, we are confronted by our own sin. We are confronted by our dark side. We are confronted by our ignorance. But we are also confronted by your love, confronted by your grace. Oh Lord, there are many times when we struggle with questions. And we can only be satisfied by the cross. I pray that you will help us to come face to face with ourselves, to wrestle with you in solitude, to allow you to do the work in our hearts. The pain can turn be turned into prayer and praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.